Well, at this point, would you even call it a surgery? It's just basically an assault. It, it, it's it's attempted murder, isn't it, on two separate yeah. people at this point? <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode seven of History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast in which myself and my co-host Derek look back on the greatest mistakes in human history so that you never make the same mistakes again. But, you know, who are we kidding? We're humans. We make mistakes all the time. Joining me as always is Derek. Derek, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. Thinking up new and interesting mistakes to make myself to help educate people. <laughs> I uh, There's just so many different ways that you can mess up and make mistakes, dude. Oh, yeah. I learned one today, actually. I didn't mention this before, but we are planning an extension on our house. We're in a semi-detached house, so we have neighbours. We were talking to them, and the builder got us all excited. He was like, oh, you can do this, and it's going to be all glass, and you're going to be able to You have your friends around and throw parties, and we were all like very excited. We were talking to the neighbour, and our neighbour works for the local council who are responsible for a lot of the administration of things like police budgets and social services and like bins and fire people and stuff like that. Very important stuff. Okay. Anyway, he works for them. And we were telling him excitedly, oh, we're getting an extension. Just just want to let you know so that we keep you on side. And he was like, you know about the 45 degree rule, right? And we were like, what the hmm? fuck is that? It's to basically mean that you don't block out the light of your neighbor's oh. windows and stuff. So we've realized that a 45 degree angle from their kitchen window like it protrudes out and where it points like we have to stop building there so it's it, it's gone from a grand dining space to like we can get like a little greenhouse or something you know it's actually frustrating dude, it's, it's it's funny that <laughs> you're mentioning like a small little addition to your house my in-laws mm. Um, just did a pantry addition onto Ooh, their house, added nice. in a little cabinet cupboard thing for their food. Yeah, and, sure. We've got and, one of those as well. Love it. Dude, they're they're awesome. They're cool. Closets are yeah. amazing. But <laughs> I thought it was strange they invited us over to take a look at it. And if they're listening, I apologize. <laughs> I'm not making funny or anything, but I just thought it was weird that you're like, hey, why don't you guys come on over and take a look at our We've closet? We've got a new thing. We'd like you to come and see it, please. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I mean, I... I kind of get that for housewarming. Like, we haven't had a housewarming yet at our place because we moved in, you know, after we got married, and then, like, two, three months later, the pandemic hit, and everyone went into lockdown, and everyone's so spread out. We haven't been able to get everyone together for, like, an appropriate housewarming party, but I think going round to see someone's pantry, unless it's got, like, a robot butler, I kind of don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did great craftsmanship work in the... Oh, that's good. It's all... It looks really good. It's definitely way better than I could have done, and I'm glad that I didn't have anything to do with building it, because it would have been gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's nice. I, I think, probably... The the larder pantry thing is probably just a pretense to get you guys around so that they can hang out with you. I yeah. Think that's like, yeah, they want to spend time with you guys, so and, that makes know, sense. It, yeah, yeah, and I like spending time with them, too, so, I mean, yeah. hi, hi, I'll come over and check yeah, out the Yeah, exactly. I'll come listening. and look at your pantry if it means we get to have, like, a coffee or a beer and relax, you know, so. Indeed. Uh, yeah, so there we go, so lots of things happening in our worlds. I also noticed that your son had done really well in baseball. I saw a post, I don't know oh, if yeah, it was he, on your Instagram account, he, but just did his final start he pitched mm. uh five innings of a seven inning game uh, nice. with nine strikeouts and allowed wow. two hits one hit oh that's not bad yeah. that's pretty good average i saw him do his strut off the mound ah. so he struck the guy out and his arms started wobbling like that 
that made me laugh. I'm like, if, imagine his, if someone did that in the major leagues. That'd that's be his McGregor strut. That's what. <laughs> oh, he's doing the McMahon thing. Okay, yes, he's, the Vince yeah. McMahon walk. Okay. He's um, yeah. He he's like, oh, that's my Conor McGregor strut. Check it out. <laughs> I'm like, you oh look like my a noodle God, guy. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I was you like, could... is that a Squidward thing? What is that? <laughs> uh, I was just hoping that if uh, college coaches see it, they don't think he's too cocky. But oh, to be fair, God. that kid that he struck out was right after their dugout screamed, "He's a freshman!" on a guy that got the hit on him. So, what? so yeah, it was well, that was the incentive he needed forth. to shut them up. Yeah. Yeah, bloody, it was fun. Yeah, gamesmanship right there. Fucking hell. Well, that, that, uh, that, I would strike somebody out for that. I'd, I'd fucking bean someone for saying something like that. Next one. <laughs> right in the head. Uh, yeah. He held his composure and just went back good. and struck out like three in a row. And then well the next done. inning, he didn't do nothing for him. He was like, later, guys. Well done, young man. <laughs> Amazing. So. so it's been a while since we've spoken, and I know that you have something very exciting. You kind of teased slight elements of who this person was to me before we started recording the podcast i'm very excited i just want to um because you don't know who i've i've researched so i'm just going to give you one name the fastest knife in the west end oh my goodness that, yeah that's, that's a cool my name. person that's a, good, that's, that's, a, a that's a cool nickname so we'll get to this gentleman in a while and again more men but they do tend to you know the majority of idiots in history are men let's be honest so Indeed. we'll get to thatcher in due time but you know <laughs> most of them are men <laughs> so See, anyway I'm scared to go but, after anybody big like that oh no fuck her no we're going after <laughs> okay. thatcher eventually okay <laughs> yeah and i, I will uh, i'm welsh we hate that woman to be honest even the welsh conservatives don't mention her because they're like well we're not going to win any arguments if we mention margaret thatcher in this country Anyway, Derek, without getting into politics too soon, uh, could you please tell us about this week's idiot, please? Uh, okay, this guy that I've got, because we've been wandering around America, it seems like a lot. I've decided mm. to wander back across the sea and uh, take a look at a Scottish soldier, adventurer, and fraudster who attempted, it's been called, one of the most brazen confidence tricks in history. Wow, okay, I'm fascinated, just... Just hit me with it. Go on. Okay. He was born on Christmas Eve in 1786 to a wealthy family at their ancestral home in Stirlingshire, Scotland. Okay, yeah, Stirlingshire. Lovely part of Scotland, that. Really beautiful. Well, is that a common thing in the UK, EU sort of thing, to have an ancestral home? In Scotland, the various clans, so okay. you'll have like like Clan McGregor or Clan this, they, people will be part of a clan and it will be a very big source of pride for them. They'll even have their own tartan, which is what colour and shade and design their kilt will be. So okay. that's part of the reason kilts exist, is to display your clan colours and stuff. It's like so. gang colours. Yeah, it's basically bloods and cribs, only in like <laughs> rain surrounded by sheep and mountains, you know, so. With plaid. Yeah, with plaid and exposed <laughs> ankles all round. So, so yeah, you, you do kind of have to be wealthy to have an ancestral oh, yeah, home? yeah, well, definitely, or at least like part of the makeup of that clan. So you have to be like an administrator or descended from someone who was an important figure within the organization really so yeah. okay well that's just the first of many questions that i have about that sort of thing <laughs> so, um i imagine that he had a decent childhood because he was yeah. from a wealthy family 
Um, sure. There's not a lot known about his childhood and his growing up, but okay. he, it is common knowledge that his father died in 1794 to leave him and his two sisters to be raised alone by their mother with the help okay. of like various relatives throughout time. Okay. So yeah, yeah. he not lost his father. for that time. Yeah. Well, a lot of people died early and mm, people exactly. grew up without parents and, you know, yeah. a, a village raises children. Sure, absolutely. So he did lose his father, but came from a family with money, so he had that going for him, which is nice, Mm -hmm. to quote Caddyshack groundskeeper (laughs) there. (laughs) So (laughs) as soon as it was legally possible for him, though, he went and joined the military at just 16 years of age. Very common at the time. Since his family was rich, they were able to purchase him a commission for... Around 450 pounds. Which, Je- Jesus, that is a lot of money back then. Well, yeah. That's uh, several years' salary. Around $46,000 or 46,000 pounds in today's currency. That's f- but, um, I mean, we're talking about, like, scaling it. That's That would have been a shitload of money back then. It's more like, than I make in a year. So. There there were some people back in those days who were making a pound a year, like kind of middle class people were making So that's that. that's like super rich then. That's super rich. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. During his time in the British Army and his purchased commission, he was deployed during the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, wow. And while he was deployed, he attained the rank of captain. And I, I say attained because mm. he did earn <clears throat> um, the rank in between, but again, he purchased uh, the promotion to captain for around 900 pounds or 78,000 pounds in today's uh, cash. What kind of cronious bullshit is this where you can just buy your way into positions of power? Well, that's what I was going to ask you, too. Is that something that's common in the UK? Is it still a thing or is it just back in the day they did that? I mean, typically... Right, so one of the rules, I I don't know if it's still the case, but certainly I've looked into it in the past, is that if you join the army with a degree, so you've got a Bachelor of Science or Arts or whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, you will automatically join as a captain. So that's that's the thing. It's no longer based on you're from Eton, therefore you're automatically going to be leading. Like, you have to earn that. You will come in as a private at, like, 17, 18, whatever it is, and you will work your way up from there depending on which avenue you go down, which corps you decide to join, and all that but if you join with a degree or a qualification that's relevant you will start at captain because you've immediately got a leg up in terms of things like communication and so initially that's the only way to really i mean there are examples of people pulling strings for their sons because their best mates are rear admirals such and such you know that that usual thing but that is less common now it's more a meritocracy but definitely back then i mean that is a huge sum of money to pay right. to become a captain crazy he, they saw that guy coming big time oh yeah well that's like a car dealer like rubbing their hands together like that <laughs> i kind of feel like it still happens it's just quiet mm. and we don't hear about it now they figured out probably a way to keep it. but i mean in america the <clears throat> the military thing you go to college and you get a commission Sure. If you yeah. enlist, um, if you enlist, you just stay enlisted. If you don't have college, you stay for the most part the private NCO yeah. sort of deal. Sure. But, yeah. Well, I wonder uh, what happened with Bush. Did he? Did he join as like? See, mm. see, that's what I mean. He arrived he in National Vietnam Guard. in like eighty one, and it'd been fucking over for years at that point. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I brought the cocaine. <laughs> it's the party. <laughs> anyway. During his time in the uh, British Army, he married a woman from an influential family. 
Um, As you do. Named Maria Bowater. Okay. Her father was an admiral in the Royal Navy when they mm. met in 1804, and she was also related to two generals and a member uh, of parliament and some right, famous yeah. botanist I've never heard of because I don't know botanists. <laughs> you could say she was well-connected, and that kind mm. of played into stuff that happens in the future. So yeah, most I... of his time in the British Army, uh, he spent it with the 57th Regiment of Foot, which is just a crazy-sounding name to me, but... <laughs> All of the, I don't, the I don't designations are. He was able to rise above captain through a combination of purchases and some actual promotions, but he was Jesus. seconded to uh, the 8th Line Battalion of the Portuguese Army as a major in 1809. I don't know what seconded mm. means, but it, something happened. There was a oh, disagreement. Oh, they loaned him, basically. Okay, well, there was a disagreement yeah. with one of his superior officers over some trivial shit, from what I understand, and they yeah. sent him off over there, and somehow it got him promoted to major. And That actually anyway, did happen. Yeah, it went bad for him because he ended up having to retire in uh, 1810. He requested, oh, he was wow. forced to request a discharge, which left him disgraced from the British Army. And then his wife died. Oh so, my goodness! Wow, what a terrible sequence there. Yeah, and he he loses his job pretty much, and mm. his his rank and his status and then his wife dies who's his influential and he loses their status and money and it mm. kind of well starts wandering off from there and he tries to get it back by lying his ass off yeah because <laughs> why not well he's bought his way into society so why can't he lie his way back into society at this point for a fact he yeah. started lying to reestablish himself as an aristocrat because you know right. he's short on funds sure and he he Referred to himself as Scottish royalty at this point now, mm. assuming the title of Sir. Okay, and now that's... everybody pretty much just ignored him. Well, I'm not so... surprised. Like we we know the Queen, we know that you haven't seen her and been knighted. So get lost with this Sir bullshit. And then a year later, that 57th foot that he was part of, yeah, yeah, did some really cool shit and <laughs> um, earned some clout in the Battle mm. of Alburia. Alburia. Okay. Is that Napoleonic know. stuff still, yeah. probably? Yeah. Yep. They earned themselves a kick-ass nickname of uh, the Diehards. Ooh, that is it. That's better than the fighting mongooses or, you know, the Diehards. That's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's cooler now that Bruce Willis made that movie. But Yeah, they're all uh, wearing vests. <laughs> so that happened in 1811, and we know this dude was forced to retire in 1810. Sure. And so why not start making a big deal out of their accomplishment and taking credit for your association with the Diehards? Stolen you know, valor. <laughs> so you think it might work for him it doesn't really he gets no love and decides to sell off his scottish estate and head Ooh. to venezuela okay why what he figures why? his bullshittery will go a little bit further over okay. there i imagine right i hope he can speak <laughs> it, spanish well it turns out that his bullshittery was right i don't know if he spoke uh, spanish very well but he was warmly welcomed by general okay. francisco de miranda all right. And a famous political revolutionary, Simon Bolivar. Oh, my God. The father of South America, pretty much. Right. Jesus. And he, he gets real tight in there and uh, gets into the Venezuelan army under Bolivar. Oh, wow. And he rises to the rank of general. And then he marries Bolivar's cousin, Josefa Lovera. Oh, this guy and is smart. Dude, he's getting a, a redo of his life. Like, now yeah. he jumped into another military, went to general, <laughs> married another Marry another influential one. person. Fuck, you know, this guy's he's, smart. He's got a type. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> did I mention at this point in time, dude's only 25 years old? Wow. What? Tw- hold on. So he's retired. He's starting to steal valor. His wife's dead and he's losing money and his place in society. And he's only 25. That is yep. crazy. Then he wanders off, becomes a general, marries a new, new influential lady and Jeez. goes on to uh... meet Simon Bolivar. He, yeah, he, well, he, he gets reconnected and redoes all of his... He gets a redo, basically, and he thinks, man, if only I could find a way to make this better. I'm assuming. I, <laughs> I have no actual quotes on that. but Yeah, sure. He um, wandered along in 1820 and found some deserted, unlivable, pest-infested garbage strip of land that uh, it was in How did he end up the... in Vegas? <laughs> Sorry, Good I had to God. make that joke. That's that's real life right there. Yeah, that, that is. A... That's Bugsy Siegel's life right there. <laughs> so this is a co- along the coast of Nicaragua. Oh. Um, the land was inhabited by, I shit you not, the Mosquito People. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a, a tribe of people that were descended from uh, indigenous Native Americans sure. and sh- shipwrecked African slaves. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fascinating. These Mosquito People, which is still the... Coolest damn name ever. It sounds like um, a H.G. Wells novel at this point. <laughs> I'm kind of scared to ever run into one. They sound yeah. terrifying. So the people that inhabited it, the Mosquito people, didn't really right. think too much of the land and didn't see a whole lot of uh, use for it and sure. decided, why not give up the big old chunk of paradise, quotey fingers, <laughs> uh, that was about the size of whales. Wow. Um, in exchange Jeez, for land. some rum and some nifty jewelry. Smart people. They, they made out like a bandit. <laughs> you give me jewelry, I will give you whales. I don't own it, but I will give you whales if you give me jewelry. See, so. and then what he did once he owned it for the rum and jewelry is proclaimed himself the royal leader. Because fuck it, why not? <laughs> yeah, he's got the land. Why not? You can do it. You can proclaim yourself king. Why the hell he, not? He named it Poyas. I think that's P O Y A I S. Okay. But yeah. in 1821, he made his return to London and started planting seeds and spreading rumors about this utopian colony in the Americas oh. that he found. And uh, he found his way back to using the 57th foot thing to, he did. you know, make himself actually a wartime hero and mm. credible. And he uh, did have an engaging personality, so people started right. to listen to him this time. Okay. And when he started talking about this poyas, he told him about how the natives were not only kind, but they actually loved the British. He's <laughs> That's such bullshit. And on top of them loving the British, the <laughs> soil was totally fertile, and the climate is perfect year-round. Mm. How did nobody see through this at the time? I don't know. Maybe people back in the day were not. They just they were gullible. They oh, people they weren't yes, a whole lot of really of discovered liars yet. I don't know. Mm, it's true. Charles so, Ponzi wasn't around for a, a good while yet. Yeah, a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got all of them believing in the perfect climate and great native uh, people. And then he starts getting them to think that it already has a capital city with domes what? and colonnades of state buildings. What? And there's a tricambrial parliament and a banking system oh, with land titles. <laughs> All of that's going Bullshit. on, man. It's the promised land. Oh, my God. This guy is fucking amazing. Uh, well, I found myself looking into this going, how in the hell are exactly. people buying this? I know. And you're supposed to be, like, at this point, the British Empire is... On the rise, especially after the Napoleonic Wars, how is anybody falling for this clearly made-up bullshit? Well, I think because of the great expansion that was going on and the yeah. number of different colonies, nobody's sure. been there. 
You just gotta kind of take their word for it, I suppose. I guess so. And with him getting that uh, wartime hero status and mm. and whatnot, it uh, yeah. kind of made it a little bit more credible. But then he stepped it up a notch and started <laughs> oh churning God. out a fuck ton of original looking documents. Okay. Um, he he came up with the land titles and uh, pushed the message out into the printed word and fabricated a 355-page guidebook uh, about the fake colony called right. A Sketch of the Mosquito Shore by a fictitious explorer named Captain Thomas Strangeways. Oh, now come on. See, he's kind of flaunting that he's full of he shit. He really is. <laughs> So the fake book is filled with all kinds of detailed information, drawings, engravings, and he printed it out, sold thousands of copies across London and Edinburgh, and somehow Uh-oh. even managed to get Poyas incorporated into maps and some other publications what? that were real. Whoa. Yeah, so some real people started picking up the mythical, fictitious story of the Mosquito Coast and Jesus. running with it, just assuming this guy wouldn't lie to me, apparently. <laughs> oh my god. And so he makes his next move and opens up offices in London and Edinburgh to sell land uh starting at 2 shillings per acre. I don't know if that's a lot or not, but Um no, actually back in the day that would have been like to buy land for 2 shillings. That would have been and the way he sold the land as well, it would have been worth, you know, 20, 30 times that. So that that's a very decent offer actually. Yeah, well mm. people ate it up. Of course and they did. They ate it up so much so that he said, "Well, I am going to raise it on up a little bit to okay. 4 and then later to 6." And then he said, "You know what? I've got an idea." <laughs> And his idea was to organize a listing of Poisian uh, loan on the London Stock Exchange to sell fake currency from the bank of Poyas to pretty much anybody that wanted to buy it. He really the, did step it up. Holy shit. He actually, he actually got the money printed by the Bank of Scotland's official press. Oh, my God. He, he started telling the hopeful settlers that they could exchange their pounds sterling for Poyas dollars. Oh, my and, God. Like a lot of stories go, he didn't know when to quit, and oh. he wanted a little bit more. And when did you go from there? You've made up your own currency and got people to believe into it. Oh, my God. Well, you start selling tickets, my friend. In oh. uh, September and October of 1822, he organized and chartered two voyages oh with God. over 200 would-be settlers on uh, some ships to journey to nowhere, basically. Oh, my God. When they finally got there, they were really confused because they're like, this land's shit. <laughs> this yeah, can't be there's it. There's nothing here. Where is the capital city? And because they were the type of people that believed that everybody's good, uh, mm. they figured maybe they just made a mistake while they were sailing and <laughs> they landed in the wrong spot because right. the land's uninhabited, swamp land, virgin forest yeah. garbage. So maybe we should go further inland. And the thing that sucks about that is it was during the rainy season. So oh, no. Dengue fever yeah. and all that. They did malaria and yellow fever yep. started running Ugh. rampant, and it killed two thirds of Ugh. the o- over two hundred settlers before another British colony from around five hundred miles away could make it to them and save Jeez. the roughly fifty or so settlers that this were is like left. Jamestown level deaths at this point. That is crazy. Yeah, he sent them off to just die, die. like the worst, <laughs> like yeah. exposure deaths ever. Ugh. And uh, well, those fifty settlers made it back to England in eighteen twenty three. Wow. And they found that uh, dude had run off to Paris and <laughs> was running a similar scam for the something else that ra- yeah. raised around 400,000 pounds or so. Wow. Yeah, he's just raking it in. And I'm then by surprised. 1825, 
uh, enough was enough. People yeah. said, all right, we've got to arrest this dude and charge him with fraud. Yeah, good. Good. Well, the trial was held in France, but due to mm. some diplomatic shenaniganry, it took over a year to actually get it going. Okay. And that gave him enough time to plan and execute one more scam. Oh, come on, dude. Give up. So he decides what he's going to do is mount uh, his defense. And I think maybe Cochran was his lawyer because <laughs> my friends did it. It was my oh, associates no. made me do it. And uh, he was able to, by just being an asshole and blaming his friends, be acquitted of all charges. What? I have no idea how that happened. There, there wasn't the a whole hell? lot of detail on how he pulled that one off, but he kills a whole bunch of people, steals a bunch <laughs> of money, and gets off scot-free. Why not? Jesus. Uh, he did try to run a few more security scams throughout the 1830s that were mostly unsuccessful. Mostly. Uh, he didn't need to. He's got all that money. Why is he still doing it? Something to do, I guess. Oh, fuck. By 1838, his wife, uh, his second wife, died, and he decided mm. to head back to Venezuela and hook up with his old military friends. There, he was reinstated with his former army position. <sighs> he even on. managed to get back pay and a what? pension. Yeah. <laughs> at, at this point, I was kind of like, dude, this guy might not be an idiot. He might be the most yeah, brilliant he might be the man alive. Ever. <laughs> it's like, he has all the money anyone in the planet would ever need in that time, and he's looking to get back pay for an army salary. Yep, and and, he, and he just keep going with it. Why not? Oh so he's, God. I don't know. Again, it's that fine line of is he a genius or an idiot yeah. or an asshole? I just <laughs> so think, yeah. Maybe he's all three. I don't know. Yeah. But despite cheating his ways to a negligent homicide of over 150 plus people Jeez. with just over 50 of them making it back. Right, uh, yeah. He was able to, to live out his life in relative peace with back pay and pension and all of that. With yeah. an actual, some manner of respect until he died in 1845. Wow, so he, he, he yeah, he, he kind of, when did he arrive back in Venezuela? So 1840 was it, or something like that? 1838, pretty close there, yeah. Okay, so oh, he, right. wow, he really didn't have long left at that point. Yeah, well his mm. wife died and he mm. wanted to rake in some money and then he figured, okay, enough's enough, and he just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm figuring it all out in my head. But he was known as the con man behind one of the most profitable scams in history. Wow, And yeah. possibly an inspiration for a whole bunch more fraudsters, like mm -hmm. that one dickhead that organized Firefest. I don't know if oh, you heard God. about that over there. Yeah, Billy yeah. McFarlane. He sent oh, somebody to an island of nowhere. And he did. It was miserable. So. A Sands Resort car park, as it turns out. <laughs> so, Jesus. the original Firefest, uh, it was... Douchebag. It was successful. It was. Well, incredibly mean. successful. Four hundred thousand pounds in that day and age—that's like royalty money. That is a significant chunk of change. I, the <sighs> the idiot in question is none other than General Gregor McGregor, which is a cool <laughs> fucking name. <laughs> that sounds like a bullshit name as well. It sounds like even his name's made up. Oh God, right, did you, I say Clan McGregor at the start of this podcast? You did, sir. I, I did. was like, oh, this son of a. Holy shit. He knows. I just picked a random Scottish name, and apparently I got the right one. Uh, <laughs> so that's my idiot this episode, is General Gregor, Gregor McGregor. McGregor. Well, I'm not going to forget that name in a hurry. That's not that confusing. Wow. What a massive arsehole. Um, yes, sir. I mean, idiot for sure. Idiot in the sense that if people kind of knew at the time what they were buying into, they'd have wanted to kill him. And if it had A lot out, earlier, yeah. I kind of, again, this is one of those things where you're like, well, 
is is he the idiot or is it like the society he was in that were so naive they bought all of this bullshit so readily that seems to be a thing that's pretty common in idiotic moments of history is it is large populations behind the one that we talk about that are indeed the idiots (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, the the madness in what is it? Madness is rare in in individuals, but in groups, it's the rule. That's the old Nietzsche quote. That is, I'm amazed he managed to con that many people. And it also goes to show that because he didn't just con the poor, there will have been middle class and upper upper class people in there as well. It goes to show that no matter what station these people would have had at the time, because it was a very structured society, Victorian Britain, he conned everyone, no matter how supposedly clever and upper class they were, he took everyone for their money. That's, I mean, in a way, his gusto, it's good, but he's responsible for the deaths of 150 people, and he still got away with it, because, like, he's... You didn't mention any co-conspirators in there, and the fact that he's running around doing the majority of this himself means he's clearly the only one responsible. So, in terms of idiot scores, because he was so successful, he's not what we would consider a traditional idiot, but he's definitely a massive prick and responsible for debt and death. And I think I'm probably going to go with a 78 with this guy. I will take that. Yeah. That's a fair score. I think had he failed, I think he would have had a higher score. If you'd planned all this and everyone's like, are you out of your fucking mind? We're not stupid. But apparently they were. So If he would have been sucked dry by the mosquito people. Yes. If the mosquito people would have been like, you can have this land, give us all the rum. And then it turns out it was owned by Simon Bolivar and he was basically (laughs) fucked. Um, That would have been hilarious. But um, I mean, it's kind of an incredible life. The fact that he knew all these these influential people and fought against Napoleon and met Simon Bolivar who is, to my recollection of history, he's known as the only good despot in history because he was a single ruler and he ruled with an iron fist. But actually he was pretty good, you know, in terms of how despots are. Yeah, well, I mean, people were relatively happy with him back in the day. I mean, except for the people that were against him. Exactly. That's always the case, I think. (laughs) Um, Incidentally, when you were... I didn't want to interrupt your flow earlier. You mentioned about soldiers being loaned to countries. That happened in the American Revolutionary War. Prussia loaned one of their soldiers to George Washington. And I am going to cover this guy at some point because he is a fascinating case. He was a giant, hairy, Santa Claus-looking dude. Incredible military leader, incredible tactician. And when he met Washington, he pulled up on a sled. Um, He was covered in furs and he had the beard and stuff. But he smelled really pungent. Like in a nice way, not like really disgusting. He showed up with gingerbread. Yeah, he showed up (laughs) with his two male lovers, and he was incredibly flamboyant, and he was openly gay. Which at the time people were like, "Wait, hang on, does that mean he worships the devil?" We don't know what that word means. (laughs) So, is they had no concept of like, what do you mean gay? (laughs) Yeah, what's that? Is that what the Greeks used to do? We don't understand. So, like, he was that. That's Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, he he showed up and he was loaned from Prussia, but he was actually an unsung hero of the Revolutionary War in America because he was a very very good tactician, very charismatic as well. And he kind of seemed to have these lovers of his under his thrall because they were like, okay. oh, he's so good. Look at look at how amazing our, our partner is and stuff. So he was basically in a polyamorous relationship with these two guys. Just a, a really fascinating figure, and I'd love to cover him. He sounds but, pretty awesome. 
He is amazing. A man out of time, really. Almost like a warrior Freddie Mercury type, to be honest, by the sounds of it. Uh, now, do you remember Street Fighter? The yes. The big giant Zangief guy? I'm kind yeah, of pro- basically that's what they said. Yeah. Like Zangief and- covered in furs yeah. uh, and, and with like a bunch of lovers around him, smelling beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, another well, Netflix movie. That is a Netflix movie and a half. That would be a great film. But as far as that guy goes, Gregor McGregor, great name, fascinating story, and definitely an idiot. But more towards the asshole spectrum of idiocy, I would say, because he's like he took advantage of people, and he's like you say, he also didn't know when to quit. He just took everyone for a ride. It was almost like he was on a mission. Maybe he was addicted to conning people. It's entirely possible because of the power involved and, you know, the thrill he would have got from lying and getting away with it and stuff. That's a a whole psychological thing as well. He might have been a psychopath. I didn't think about. Very, very possibly. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about the addicted to it part. Oh, yeah. Pretty much anything that can change your brain chemistry, you can get addicted to. So I'd imagine lying conning people, having the power over influential people and being able to fleece money out of them. I'd, I'd imagine that that's an addictive thing, I would say. It's but that's fascinating. A... I I love Gregor McGregor's story. I hate the guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's less likable than Timothy Dexter. But uh, Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Timothy Dexter was... He was traditional idiot. Yeah. Man, but came out ahead. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but this guy was clearly quite smart, but he used it for misadventure, really. Now, yeah. go on, sorry. sorry what I was going to say, he's, he's, he's along the asshole lines like oh, Andrew yeah. Jackson. Which, by oh, yeah. the way, I read a story that uh, he had a... He's the only U.S. president to have a parrot <laughs> as a pet while he was in the, the White House. And wow. not only did he have a parrot as a pet, but it was a cussing parrot. Nice. cursed like crazy. I did not so read much that. So much so. Yeah. It had to be removed from uh, his funeral. It was cussing a storm. They had to take Andrew Jackson's parrot out of Andrew <laughs> oh Jackson's God. funeral. Oh, my um, God. So you're going to have to leave this party. You've had enough. That's amazing. The parrot. Burn in hell, motherfucker. <laughs> That's so. amazing. Oh, wow. Andrew Jackson's swearing parrot. I did not find that in my, my research. I clearly was looking in the wrong sources. Um, I wander down rabbit holes. <laughs> I don't know how I find stuff. That's amazing. So you said that um, after wandering around America, you wanted to go back over the pond and find a Scottish idiot, and you certainly did. I'm about to introduce <laughs> you to another Scottish idiot, a different Scottish right. idiot, a contemporary of Gregor McGregor, maybe even bought shares, actually. It's around about the same time. That'd Let me be awesome. Intru- yeah, this could, they could very well be linked, actually, because they all they moved in similar circles, actually. Let me introduce you to the fastest knife in the West End, Robert Liston. Robert was a pioneering Scottish surgeon. Uh, He was noted for his skill in an era prior to anaesthetics when speed made a difference in terms of pain and survival. No anaesthesia whatsoever. We'll get get to that part in a second. I'll just give you his backstory. I know. Jesus. He was born in... Oh, here we go. Right, Scottish words. He was born in (laughs) the Manse of Ecclesmacken. I don't know what a manse is or where that is. And I thought the name of his ancestral home was hard for me. (laughs) Ecclesmacken. Sorry. (laughs) The Manse of Ecclesmacken in West Lothian, which is west of Edinburgh. 
so kind of okay. gives you an idea of where it is. Uh, he was the son of Margaret Island from Calross, and her husband, the Reverend Henry Liston, a clergyman and an inventor for our, who was from Ecclesmacken. His grandfather, also Robert Liston, was the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. So, much like Gregor McGregor, came from a decent background, came from like a really either upper middle class or middle class family by the sounds of it right. so not like dirt poor bunch of relatives dying before he was like a certain age and stuff right after a local education both from his father and in the Abercorn village school liston studied medicine at the university of edinburgh from 1808 and in 1810 he became assistant to his tutor dr john barclay in 1816 he went to london for a year to train under william blizzard apparently these are all famous doctors I've never fucking heard of them before. They got cool names. William Blizzard is an awesome name for a character. If Again, Netflix, if you are listening, first Dude. of all, give us some money. But second of all, <laughs> Bill Blizzard, that's a fucking awesome name right there. Dr. Blizzard could be a Marvel character. Oh my god, Dr. William Blizzard, yes. God, just give us <laughs> all of the money. What are you waiting for? Uh, he returned to Edinburgh <laughs> to teach anatomy alongside James Syme. He was then living at 95 Princess Street, a fine house facing Edinburgh Castle. That's a really lovely part of Edinburgh. Just so you know, if you ever get a chance to go to Edinburgh, it's got amazing museums. Edinburgh Castle's awesome. There's there's some really cool stuff to do there. They have some of the best Mexican food outside of America I've ever tried in my life. Absolutely just, delicious. You just blew my mind. I know. I'm, I was shocked. Now I've got to go there just to try that. I I know Texans <laughs> who have been there and been like, that was really good. That, I, okay. Yeah, it's a ringing endorsement. Um, <laughs> in 1818, he became house surgeon in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh under Dr. George Bell. However, he was dismissed in 1822 due to disagreements with Bell and not reinstated until 1827. So he had like five years in the wilderness. Before we move forward, we should probably talk about Liston's personality because this is going to be a very important part of not just his history, but of like the history of surgeons in general. He was the prototype, literally the prototype surgeon with a god complex. He was okay. the very first scalpel jock. Uh -huh, he was apparently nice. very difficult to work with uh, at a time in English history when hierarchy and knowing one's place in society, that was the be-all and end-all. You stepped out of those lines and you were basically fucked. And if you're a bit of a prick, you're going to find consistent work very difficult to come by. So okay. this guy was not, he didn't take any shit. And unfortunately, in that situation, this guy's your boss. You kind of need to take his shit, unfortunately. I got you. So, one historian has described him as an abrupt, abrasive, argumentative man, unfailingly charitable to the poor and tender to the sick, unpopular to his fellow surgeons at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. He relished operating successfully in the reeking tenements of the grass market and lawn, ma uh, lawn market areas on patients that had been discharged as hopelessly incurable. So he was like, you aren't worthy of these patients. I can fix them. He's that guy. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, I like I... The, the idea of him being vigorously in favor of helping people from incredibly poor backgrounds. But also, like, he sounds like he's doing it because he can and to be a bit of a prick, yeah. you know? It sounds like like his god complex oh, yeah. might come into to play there. Yeah. And then with it being poor people, he doesn't really care if he fails with it. Exactly. He just won't tell nobody. 
Yeah, gotcha. we'll we'll get to his interesting failures in a bit because he has quite a. <laughs> A complex relationship with medical history. In 1828, he was promoted to operating surgeon and became the first, the northern anatomist of Blackwell's magazine. So I guess that's like an article someone wrote. It must okay. it must be a big deal because they say the first. There must be multiple versions out there. In 1830, school medical journal. Yeah, it will be. It will be something like that, won't it? In 1832 and 1833, he's living at 99 George Street in the centre of Edinburgh's new town. In 1833, he applied for a professorship in anatomy at Edinburgh University, but was beaten by James Syme, who we mentioned earlier, who was five years his junior because Syme had a much better aptitude as a teacher and wasn't a prick. So, you (laughs) you know, should we go with this guy or this guy who's just as good and isn't an arsehole? It's not much of a choice. I wish they went with that when they were choosing my teachers. Yeah, well, me too. Uh, (laughs) I think that's a story as old as time, isn't it? Why is it always arseholes? Um, Liston then left Edinburgh and relocated to London. And this is where things start to get a bit interesting because as people started to notice, he was quite good at performing safe, fast amputations. His renown started to grow. I know it's going to get pretty gross. His renown started to grow outside of like medical students who were like, bloody hell, he did that quickly. People on the street are now starting to hear, there's this surgeon who can lop people's limbs off like that. His ego started to grow and he became obsessed with being the fastest surgeon in the country and even the world. At the time, now let's talk about medicine at the time. There was no anesthesia. We've covered that part. You were awake during any surgery and you felt everything unless you decided to show up pissed in which case if you got drunk like steaming drunk barely able to stay awake drunk that was probably the best way to get through the surgery at that point you could not do it so you'd have died also at the time people just loved amputating stuff so if you broke your finger it was coming off take it off they were just lopping it off if you broke your toe say goodbye to your foot if you had a slight migraine they would probably chop your ears off and then your head just to be okay, sure. Okay, cool. Uh, start with the ears. Start with the ears. Didn't work? Okay, we'll just take the head off, see if that works. But basically, at the time, the only way to minimise pain and maximise survival rates was to be fast and accurate. And that's something that Liston prided himself on. Operating... Sorry, I was just making sure that he was called Liston and not Lipton. <laughs> James <laughs> Lipton, for some reason, popped in my head. Uh, I don't know why that happened. Operating out of London's University College Hospital, Liston lost only 10% of his patients on the operating table. His contemporaries, who didn't approach surgery like it was a fucking samurai film, lost 25% of their patients. So, one in 10 as opposed to one in four, which is... Yeah. That's a significant... When you are saving that many more lives, especially in a place like London, where there's so many powerful and rich people, your name is going to get out there. And if they do stub their toe on a door, then they're going to come, can you lop this off quickly, please? <laughs> At the start of his fame, his leg amputations lasted two minutes. Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> the same amount of time it takes to make a cup of coffee or lose interest in a newer McGregor film. That I've just put that here. McGregor. Uh, that, that's weird that that played into it. But, you know, Ian McGregor's got terrible films. Despite this amazing achievement, he was obsessed with getting the times lower and lower, partially for his survival rate, because obviously the quicker, the more he can do, and, you know, all of that, but also because he loved the attention. Like, he was starting to get right. really into the publicity he was getting. He even had, and this is where, at this point, you're like, well, maybe this is just speculation from jealous people that were like, 
because he had such a good survival rate, they wanted to muddy the waters of his reputation or something. No, this dude had a fucking catchphrase. Uh-oh. Before every surgery, he would roll up his sleeves and say, time me, gentlemen, every single time. <laughs> so if he hadn't had a catchphrase, I think most people would have speculated that maybe it was a bit vain. But no, he's definitely vain. And this kind of confirms that he's a prick, to be honest. Yeah, I think if you're not like an actor or something like that, yeah. or a character, a and you've got a catchphrase... Yeah, what you're a dick. F- Can you imagine as well? I mean, obviously, this is bef- you're on the operating table. This is before anesthesia, so you're awake for it all. Maybe drunk, but yeah. definitely awake. And this guy rolls up his sleeves and goes, time me, gentlemen. You're like, hold on. You'll chop in my fucking leg off. Give me a little bit yeah. of humanity. Just, I'm not a To be fair, I, I have a catchphrase every now and again. <laughs> Usually like, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my catchphrase, uh, my wife had to stop me from using my catchphrase, which is just, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just apologize for everything. He even, this is the best part as well. He even used to try to get his uh, time down by, oh God, by putting bloody implements in his mouth to free up his hands instead of putting the implements down on the table next to him. Ugh, this is, this, when did the the study of germs become a thing? Uh, Florence Nightingale was the kind of the first person to look into like, maybe we should clean the blood and shit off these walls before we operate here. Yeah, okay. And well, she was we'll actually put a, it in your mouth. time. Yeah, so this guy's like, oh, I'll just put this in my mouth. I don't mind a bit of blood, you know, iron in there, it'll be good for me. He didn't want to cost himself the two seconds it would have taken to put the knife down, you know. Instead, the grossest visual oh. picture of him sticking a scalpel in his mouth yeah, and yeah. shooting a snot rocket and getting back to work. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Get this time out. After years of practice and circus-like performances, Liston got his leg amputation down to under 30 seconds. That's the Dude, amount of time yeah. it takes to see through Mitch McConnell's bullshit. <laughs> well, we'll take your leg and uh, in the time it takes for some instant oats. Exactly. That is, <laughs> I have made instant noodles in more time than that. Obviously, when you treat the human body like an obstacle course, things go wrong. During one leg amputation, his patient woke up to find that he, did, uh, he didn't have any balls anymore because Liston's <gasps> aim was off. So he took the leg... And the bits that were just happened to be at the side. Went a little high with that one. He went, yeah, it was just a little bit slap happy with the knife on that one. Um, took too much off the top. <laughs> <laughs> However, his most famous fuck up and the main reason he's going to be one of history's greatest idiots is because he once performed an operation that racked up a 300% mortality rate. Whoa! 300%. Now you think... First of all, who operates on more than one person? So, like, that's difficult as it is. So that's the most you're ever going to get mortality rate-wise in surgery is 100%, right? Unless you're, like, doing Rick Wakeman at a Yes concert, like, using both hands at the same time (laughs) or something like that. He's got scalpels attached to each one of his fingers with, like, string. (laughs) Yeah, just playing the same keyboard. Yeah, like Freddy Krueger. It's like a knife on each (laughs) finger. Maybe that's what it was. Oh, maybe. He's the one that invented that glove that for would, surgeries. That would make sense. Um, that's how he got that guy's nuts. Exactly, yeah. Just like not paying attention. He's too busy spewing his catchphrases to his adoring public. The surgery was pretty straightforward. Screaming patient on the table, no anesthesia. Liston cutting into the leg like he's a sensei in a mall karate school, chopping plywood boards everywhere. Spinning and saying, yeah! Yeah! Except, <laughs> timey gentlemen. Uh, when Liston yeah. realises he's accidentally cut off his assistant's fingers. Oh, shit. <laughs> Whoops. 
So he's chopping the dude's leg off. Immediate problem. The guy who's holding the leg, because obviously uh, you've got to hold these people down, even if you're binding them. The leg's got to be held down. Oh, yeah. Chopped off the assistants in all of their fingers. Oh, good. That didn't slow him down. He just now, he had like the screaming in stereo. So he was just like, oh, it's in both ears. That's fine. I can carry on. Sadly, both the patient and the assistant ended up getting gangrene and dying shortly after, like a couple of days later after the surgery. Uh, the, the surgery took 25 seconds. And he severed five limbs. Well, at this point, would you even call it a surgery? It's just basically an assault. It, it, it's it's attempted murder, isn't it, on two separate yeah. people at this point? You must be wondering, that's 200% mortality rate. Where's the other 100% coming from? Where's the third? Yeah. What do you, if you had to guess, what do you think it would be? Well, he took out the patient and his assistant. <laughs> um, He's basically Jack the Ripper at the this patient's point. Patient's <laughs> the patient's mom? Just You're next, lady. Um <laughs> It, amazingly, and I, I almost didn't believe it, but this is entirely genuine. First of all, the fact that he's killed two people with this surgery, not instantaneously, but a couple of days later they would die. The third, Liston was swinging so wildly with his knife during the surgery, he actually cut into an older onlooker's coat. So there are people close enough for his flailing arms to catch with knives during the surgery. Jesus that is amazing. The cuts didn't actually result in any injuries to the man, but because the knife, which had also been in his mouth, was covered in blood, it soaked into the area around the slice section of the coat and uh, looked like an honest-to-goodness mortal wound. The old man panicked, fainted, fell to the floor, had a heart attack, and died there and then. And there's your 300% mortality rate. Well played. <laughs> That's a very roundabout way to get that third one in there, yeah, but like, congratulations I'm to not, you, sir. <laughs> I'm not done yet. I have got more people to massacre today. Oh, boy. That, I, I just, I can't quite wrap my head around how, I mean, people die in surgery, you know, and you're always told, like, I've had a lot of major surgery in my life. I've had heart surgery, and I've had a load of procedures to do with my Crohn's and stuff. And you are told, like, look, there's, there's, a, there's a chance. You know, if things go wrong, this is what you might be looking at. Back in the day, a 10% mortality rate is very, very good to say there was no anesthesia. But to kill three people in one surgery with onlookers while you're screaming in catchphrase and throwing knives in and out of your mouth, <laughs> it's so fucking... It sounds like a circus. You know one of those, like, floating, like, limb-flying tire <laughs> store wave? I just picture that just strap some some knives to that and just let it go. Here He's a go. wacky, waving, inflatable arm tube, man. <laughs> That's amazing. That's how you get it done. That, uh, he was efficient. That's for sure. Like, If you died, boy, were you going to die. Despite this insane moment in his career and his obvious lack of care for those around him, Liston did make important contributions to medical procedures and and actually stuck around in the profession long enough to be part of the first surgery conducted after anesthesia, which must have been like a kind of a, a difficult moment for him, because like, where's yeah. the glory in that? I kind of feel like he might have been disappointed by the lack of reaction <laughs> yeah. and need for his speed. Gentlemen, time me. Wait, there's nobody here. Wait, why is the patient not screaming? Yeah, it's like it takes all yeah. the thrill out of it for him, doesn't it? Hold him down. We don't need to, sir. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, I can't perform under these conditions. This is ridiculous. Um, in 1841, six years before he died, he was made a fellow of the Royal Society. In, uh, it's an award granted by the judges of the Royal Society of London to individuals who have made a substantial contribution to the improvement of natural knowledge, including mathematics, engineering science, and medical science. 
Okay. Just a bunch of posh people slapping each other on the back. Yeah. Smart posh people. Well done. Let's have some brandy. You know, um, (laughs) his funeral was attended by some 400 former students and 200 random medical professionals who admired his contributions to the field so much. And he's also buried in one of the most famous cemeteries in the world, which is Highgate Graveyard, Highgate Cemetery, which is where Karl Marx is also buried. He was, uh, okay, so famed medical author Richard Gordon who um, wasn't around at the time but wrote about him based on accounts that he found, describes Liston's style like this, and I'm going to try and do it as um, I think I'm going to go with uh, some sort of posh English, I'm thinking like uh, Noel Coward or something like that He was six foot two and operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots He sprung across the blood-stained boards upon his swooning sweating, strapped-down patient like a duelist calling time me gentlemen time me to students craning f- with pocket watches from the iron iron railinged gated galleries everyone swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of the saw on bone that sight and sound seemed simultaneous to free both hands he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth they base this author makes him sound like a fucking pirate. He's a, yeah, he's a swashbuckler. What is going on? Here? The swashbuckling s- surgeon. A harsh landlubbers. Well, I mean, I'm the- going to chop off this fucker's leg. His t- his his nickname, the fastest knife, kind of sounds like a yeah. It sounds like a, a joke, anyway. doesn't it? But actually, that's <laughs> genuine. That's that's a real. I can't believe that's his name. Anyway, on top of all these, like, kind of achievements, like, he was just very fast. Like, that's not really an achievement. He did actually invent a bunch of really incredible stuff because his dad was an inventor and he must have carried on with that. He invented something called an icing glass sticking plaster. And I looked this up. This is like, I think it's like fish bladders or something. Because they were, like, very see-through, he would use them and stretch them and use them as, like, a plaster, so they would seal in the wound, but you could see what was going on, so it was the first clear plaster instead of, like, a dressing, so you could actually see if it was getting infested infected or whatever. He invented the bulldog forceps, a type of locking artery clamps, which are still in use today. The design is almost exactly the same as what he came up with, you know, like, 150 years ago. It's kind of incredible. Well... 180 years ago now. And Do you think he came up with that when he was like, shit, <laughs> there's too much bleeding. blood, I can't see what I'm doing. Uh, Give me just, that like, straw. Some, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just tying things around. Um, and also, the most, probably the most important invention of all, a leg splint that was used to stabilise uh, dislocations and fractures of the femur. He basically invented the leg splint and plaster cast type thing that you would have to hold your leg in place. Like I said, those last, that last one and uh, the one before are still in use today. And uh, essentially, the first one he created is the first ever clear dressing, which you can get from any drugstore now for like a few cents, you know, really cheap. So you might be wondering why he's on this list. He was so influential, his method of operating and behaving, this is the important part, became a kind of mold because all of his students, all 400 of them were like, I want to be that guy. He is Uh. sexy as fuck. Look at him. He's getting famous, he's like, he's braggadocious, he doesn't take any shit from his superiors, I'm going to be that guy. And they would then have 400 students of their own, who would have 400 students of their own. And He was he created an infinite amount of assholes. Yeah, basically, he was the first ever god-complex surgeon 
and he invented the scalpel jock trope that literally still exists. There are still surgeons out there who definitely do have god complexes, and it all pretty much centers on this arsehole. But that's just like one of his influences. You can argue that there are other people around at the time who were you know, they were posh, British, arrogant, you know, and that's kind of a trope for British people, and that's part of what surgeons are today. The reason he makes this list is because his 300% mortality rate surgery, that one time, is still the deadliest surgery in recorded history. <laughs> makes sense. So... That's the not only, weirdest roundabout. Yeah. So, here we go. Uh, Robert Liston, father of God-complex surgeons everywhere... And the man who killed three people in one surgical procedure. What a fucking lunatic. I love him. Dude. <laughs> Dude. I kind of do. Like, I, yeah. If Grey's Anatomy was based on this guy, yeah. I'd watch it. Exactly. If Although, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a female... Well, no, she's cooler than that. Yeah. She's not a dick. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy, he was... I mean, there were a lot of, like, boastful people at the time, and, like, showmanship was starting to become a thing in Victorian England, but this guy was a professional surgeon in the West End of London. This is where the rich and powerful went to be treated. He was completely revolutionary for his time, but uh, he has had massive knock-on effects with surgeons who were like, I have this patient's life in my hands. I can see if they live or die. And, like, that kind of influences... That's not great. Yeah, it's kind of dangerous a little bit. It is. It is a little bit. So I have to know what you think of Robert Liston. Well, because of the 300% mortality rate <laughs> and the fact that he accidentally cut off some of these balls. Yeah, um, what the <laughs> fuck, dude? That, you know, accidental idiot maybe, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, Jerk. Yeah, definitely uh, a jerk. I, just because balls went missing, I'm going... <laughs> Uh, and not on purpose. No, but they went missing uh, still. Gone with an 80. Ooh. For sure. Robert Liston, <clears throat> scalpel jock extraordinaire, gets an 80. I like that. I mean, it's important, like we, we talked about, the guy invented some incredibly useful things that have been adapted and are still used to this very day. And he was kind of better than his less competent fellows, but the fact that he was arrogant about it and created this series of arsehole surgeons and killed three people and lopped off bits, it's like, it's not yeah. good. Yeah, well, he... Pretty much scared somebody to death, so yeah. that's pretty cool. That's yeah. he killed an old man of a heart attack by being too wild with a knife that was covered in blood. Yeah. That's pretty wow. Uh, it's kind of an accomplishment. I do think, to a certain extent, because he's so famous, and I'd never heard of him until I researched him today, but uh, he is one of the more famous surgeons in history. I bet there are probably stories like that: people losing balls and penises and bits of themselves during surgery to much less famous, less competent doctors. But because he was so such a, a limelight hogger, he, he was going to get remembered for the bad shit as well, I think. Yeah, you kind of bring it on yourself a little yeah. bit when you take that step up. Yeah, you know, you step into the limelight. You're, you're going to get, like, a lot of attention on your mistakes and your positives, and, and that's clearly what happened with this guy. But, yeah, Robert Liston, surgery, lunatic, and ball chopper, leg chopper, finger chopper, old man stabber. Surgery ninja. Yeah. Ninja. <laughs> I got 25 seconds to chop off a leg. First of all, I want to know how the hell he sharpened his knives, because I've got some dull ones in the kitchen that I need to sharpen, and I need to know For his method. real? Yeah. Uh, like, I'm getting that whole, like, you know, what is it, the Iron Chef, where they've got these incredibly sharp knives or whatever it was back then. Yeah. Like, ching, yeah. Ching, like, I want to know what he's doing. 25 seconds to operate is, is pretty amazing, but that's how you lose your assistant's fingers and stuff. 
I, yeah. Well, I'm actually kind of impressed that he came up with a leg splint sort yes. of thing instead of just chopping the leg off. I know. So, was like, well, I, mean, I don't have time for this. Just put something around it. You're going to take too long. Just, <laughs> yeah. Put a, put a you're going to take a, a whole minute. I do not have yeah. a minute, but this I guy. I want to try that sometime. Yeah. Th- that's what this guy was like. He was like, you are going to take too long. I'm just going to attach two things to either side of your leg and let you walk on it for a while. Like, this is much better than having my leg chopped off, by the way. This is this yeah, works for me. Thank you. Thank you. I can walk again. I'm not being chopped to pieces. There aren't people losing fingers around me. I like this option. Um, and Granddad didn't croak. <laughs> yeah. So Gregor McGregor, one of the greatest con artists in history, and a pro again, both prototypes. These guys, prototypical con artist, and influence on huge amounts of people to come in the not too distant future, who we may end up covering. And Robert Liston, the, the surgeon who pretty much didn't give a shit and was successful, but also killed people in the most gruesome ways possible. You still can't get over having the spit and the blood all... Oh, just flying everywhere. Florence Nightingale, thank God this woman came along. And the, the other thing as well about her, she was a fellow of, uh, I think, the Royal Society for Mathematics. She invented the pie chart. Florence Nightingale... Because she was like, right, people are dying really badly in this war. Maybe we should look at what the causes are. So she kind of came up with different reasons why. And she was like, how do I get all this data in one place so that everyone can see it? So she came up with a pie chart and percentages and stuff. And that's, I mean, other than like antiseptics and cleaning places and stuff like that, Florence Nightingale invented the pie chart. That's kind of cool. That is badass. Yeah. Like, I... Also, she's named after the best city in Italy. I don't, I, I, I'm sorry if that's a controversial opinion, but I've been to Florence. It's fucking amazing. I haven't been anywhere. Michelangelo's David is in Florence, and when you see that, you're like, oh my god. This guy was oh, genius. Yeah. Sorry, we're getting sidetracked. Anyway, so those are our two idiots of the week. I, I've really enjoyed, especially McGregor McGregor, uh, Gregor McGregor. There we go. It was one yes, of the yeah. How the hell he got away with it for as long as he did and basically retired without a blemish on his record is truly amazing. Yep. And mm-hmm. Robert Liston. So there we go. Our two idiots. What how did you what did you make of these two? Well, I found the the whole story there super interesting <laughs> on my research on on McGregor. Yeah, wow. And dude, the fastest knife and At the West End. <laughs> prototypical Dick surgeon, yeah. not balls. <laughs> not uh, no. um, Yeah, it's solid. Yeah, I, I enjoy all of these. Every time yeah. we do these, I enjoy the research and I, I love the story. And I do as well. Honestly, to the people that are listening, yeah, I have no idea how I come up with my people or he how who he comes up with. <laughs> And sometimes I could use some help. So if anybody's got any suggestions, yes. I mean, we got to find a place somewhere. Absolutely. Well, you can, can contact us, us on our um, Twitter and Instagram pages, which will be linked in the description of this podcast below. So if you want to contact us, uh, the links are there. Please, if you have any suggestions about idiotic people from history, we would love to hear about them, especially if they are from your country or your local area and they're particularly famous. They don't even have to be well-known. The majority of the people we've covered in this episode, I hadn't really heard of until we started doing the research. Right, and, you know, history, that's the way it is. Absolutely. Sometimes you don't know where that came from, but some asshole created it. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So if you do have any information, please get in touch with us. That sounded like a police thing out there. If you know of (laughs) idiots out there and you'd like us to cover them, um, if you look in the description of this podcast episode, there will be links to our Instagram and Twitter pages. You can get in touch with us on there. And um, I think that's it for this week. I've had lots of fun doing this 
with you this week, Derek. It's been a fascinating journey through Scotland's idiots. Apparently, this week Scottish episode. That, so. That's pretty. That's pretty. Yeah. Uh, serendipitous and awesome. It I is. Think, I don't know. I'm using weird words. No, no, no. You, <laughs> you're right. And actually, it goes to show that really idiocy knows no national boundary. It can happen anywhere to anyone at any time. A lot of this is down, particularly with these two. I think it's down to the societies that allowed them to get away with some of this stuff. So I think yeah. one of the things that we need to do in our world is not just to continue to learn the lessons from these people that make these mistakes, but also be on our guard for idiots of the potential idiots of the future. Because if we see patterns yeah. of behavior similar to this, we have the power to stop them by going, what the fuck? Have you, have you never heard of Gregor McGregor? What are you yeah. doing? Who, who you, are you listing? You're listing this up. You're cutting off legs <laughs> over here. What are you doing? You pulled a Robert <laughs> Liston. Stop slicing your fucking fingers off. Anyway, thank you. That was our show for this week. Until next time, Derek, would you like to say goodbye to everyone? Goodbye, everyone. And I'm Lev, and we will see you again. And uh, one more time, don't forget, it's never too late to make a change in your life. If you do think you are going down a path that might lead to some mistakes, like accidentally selling land to a swamp or accidentally chopping someone's leg fingers off while simultaneously killing an old man, it's never too late to stop doing those things, especially the second one. Please put the knife down. Um, And we will see you again soon. Goodbye now.